Our second Bible reading tonight comes from Malachi, or Malachi, if you would rather, chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 5. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, there's an outline for tonight, so if you need one, please uh, feel free to grab one. And we'll be working through it. We've got a short passage tonight, but a very significant one, so keep your Bibles open to those five verses. Uh, but let's pray to God and ask him for his help uh, with this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you might open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that we might understand what what it was that Malachi taught the people then and what that teaches us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, now I want to ask you guys a question. Have you guys ever doubted God's love for you? Ever doubted God's love for you? Has it ever occurred to you that perhaps the Christian God it's not what really he made himself out to be. Now, is he really the God of love? Or is he more the God of anger? As we consider the world around us and all that happens, is our God an angry God? Is that what our God is like? But then we read a verse like this in Romans 8, in our first reading. Romans 8, 38. It's just mind-boggling. Is this really what our God is like? So let's look at this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, you read a verse like that, it's so wonderful. But is that for real? Does God love us that much that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God? I mean, it's sometimes hard to believe as a Christian, isn't it? When you live your life, as we live our lives as Christians, and we, as we experience the things that we do experience, it's hard to believe this, isn't it? I mean, being a Christian is not all cherries and blossoms and blue skies every day. It's often quite hard. It's often very difficult I mean, in this past year, I just want you to consider this yourself. In this past year, have you shed a tear because you've been hurt, because you've been in pain, because you've been suffering? In this past year, has that happened yet? I mean, that's not the way it's meant to be, is it, for Christians? Things perhaps aren't going too well amongst your friends. That's been hurtful. That's been painful. Things perhaps aren't going too well at home. Things are hurtful and painful there. Sometimes you might feel lonely, isolated, even though there are so many people around you. You're isolated, you're lonely, you're in pain, you're in distress, and it's depressing. 
And then you wonder, you look at the verse and you wonder, is that for real? I mean, is God really the God of love? Or is our God really more angry? An angry God who's giving us all these experiences of life. And so when these things happen, we doubt God, don't we? I mean, in this past year, this past six months, in fact, I've experienced something in my extended family that's perhaps the most hurtful thing ever I've ever experienced. I've kept it to myself. I won't give you the details, but it was extremely sad for, for me and my family. Something happened in our extended family. Never been so sad in such a long time. And then you consider a verse like this. Is this for real? I mean, does God really love us to that extent? And so we doubt. We cry out, where are you, God? Where is your love? And we doubt God's love. I wonder if you've experienced that. And so as we consider this passage in Malachi, I think this passage will help us to see God as he really is. You see, the feelings we might be having, the experiences we might be having now in life, it's not unique to us. You see, people have experienced all sorts of pain and suffering at all times. And so when we consider now this passage in Malachi, we see that day two, during this time, we're experiencing deep hardship, depressing times, and on a national scale as well. You see, the nation of Israel, that was God's chosen people, that's dwindled down to now only being a tribe, the tribe of Judah. And these guys, at this time, during the time of Malachi, they were experiencing extreme hardship. They were disillusioned about the promises of God. God made huge promises. They were disillusioned by that. They were discouraged by their situation. They looked around, and it was a mess. Their city, Jerusalem, was in ruins. And so they became cynical about God's claim that God still loves them. They're thinking, are you for real, God? Look at our situation. It's a mess. And so, so we need to do some, I guess, historical thinking. What's going on? Well, you see, to their eyes and to them, things were not meant to be as they are. Things were meant to be better. Things are not meant to be how they were at the time of Malachi because 500 years earlier, things were awesome for the people of God. 500 years earlier, during the time of King David and King Solomon, that was their golden era. There was a time when they had all the blessings of God, and that was the time they expect. That's the, that's the type of experiences they want then. You see, all during the time of David and Solomon, they were a prosperous nation. They were wealthy. You know, they had so much that silver meant nothing to them. They had the temple of God with them, so God dwelt with them. In their city, all the other surrounding nations, they were at peace with them, and they were, in fact, envious of God's people. And so they had it good at one stage, 500 years earlier. But that seems to have all been lost. I mean, they were so good, other nations envied them. The Queen of Sheba visited them just to see how great they are, to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, to see the glory of the temple, and to see how wondrous their God, in fact, is. But what happened? So a little historical study. So this is the map of where Israel is. So this is, um, if you can see that. So Israel and Judah, that's the nation of Israel. 
But then something happened in 922, after Solomon, the kingdom was in fact separated into two. It was split as a punishment from God. So you had the northern kingdom, that became known as Israel, as up there. And you had the southern kingdom known as Judah. Okay, so that was as punishment from God. But you see, the northern kingdom, all the kings pretty much in the northern kingdom were evil. They worshipped idols. And as punishment, in 722, God sent the Assyrians to pretty much destroy the northern kingdom. So Israel was pretty much no more to be seen after 722. The southern kingdom, Judah, they continued to survive for a bit longer. But then in 597, God sent the Babylonians. They destroyed Jerusalem, and they took all the temple treasures, and the, and the people of God were exiled into Babylon. And then what happened? Well, in 539, the Babylonians, they were defeated by the Persians. The Persians became the world power, defeated them, and then they allowed the people of God to return to their land as promised by God. So they've returned to the land, and so I'm giving you the context of where Malachi is. So Malachi, during that time, was about 80 years after they returned to their promised land. So they've returned to the land, God's kept his promise, and they're expecting things to be much better, much better. But what do they see? Well, they're no longer willpower. They're just this weakling of a nation, not even a nation, just a province. They were just a minor province in the... 120 provinces of the vast Persian state, the vast Persian empire. They didn't even own their land. They were under foreign rule. They had to pay taxes to the Persians. They had to um, uh, pay taxes and, and they had to pay an annual tribute as well. And so if you're thinking in their terms, they've returned to their land. Things are meant to be better. And then they look around and they think, where is God? I thought you loved us. Where is God? Not only that, they look around their city, Jerusalem. That was destroyed. It was laid a ruin now. They had no wars. They experienced poverty. And their numerous, the, the nation which was once so numerous, has now dwindled down to only about 150,000. And so they're looking at each other. And they're looking around them. And they're thinking, God, where are your promises? Where are your blessings? Where is your love? But worse than that, worse than the economic and political hardship, was their spiritual distress. You see, in, in about 516, they actually rebuilt the temple. So that's called the second temple, so that God might dwell with them again. But the thing is uh, that that temple was, in a sense, a joke compared to Solomon's temple. It was much smaller. It was nowhere near as glorious as the time of Solomon. And when they returned, they had no king as well. But God promised them there will always be a king on the throne. And so just try to get into their mindset. Things look hopeless in the time of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. Things were hopeless. Things were not what they're meant to be. And so they cry out, where is God and where is your love? And so Malachi steps on the scene. So he comes on the scene. He's about 460 B.C., around 80 years after their return. So Malachi receives this word from God. So look at verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And so what did God say? What was his word? So Malachi standing there in Jerusalem on the corner, 
proclaiming to the people who are in distress, who are disillusioned, who are depressed. And this is what he says, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I still love you, says the Lord. Now just imagine that. You're a Jewish person in Judah, in Jerusalem. Things are a mess around you. And this prophet comes along and says, God loves you. What would you be thinking? Well, these guys, what were they thinking? Well, they're probably thinking, you know, God, maybe he did love us. In the past, we have seen how God has loved us. He saved us from Egypt. He's sent us judges. He's given us kings. He's given us all these prophets. Perhaps God did love us, but it doesn't seem like that anymore. I mean, instead, they're probably thinking, I mean, God, look at us now. We're a mess. We're sad. We're depressed. Your promises are nowhere to be seen. Your love is nowhere to be seen. And so what did they do? They actually questioned God. Look at verse 2. They actually questioned God and said, how have you loved us? They've turned back to God and said, well, how have you loved us? Prove it. Prove it to us now. I mean, just look at our situation. It's sad. Prove to us your love. But then how did God respond? So following in verse 2, what did God say? God said, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, that seems to be quite a strange response from God, isn't it? They asked God, how have you loved us? And that was God's answer. So what did God mean there? We see what God was saying was, remember your ancestor Jacob, your forefather. Jacob and Esau, they were twins of Isaac. So Jacob and Esau, remember them? They were twins. Jacob was, in fact, the younger twin. So the blessing, the promises of God should have gone to Esau. But God is saying here, remember your father Jacob, who became the nation of Israel. Esau became the nation of Edom. Well, remember him. I chose to love him. I chose to love him, and I chose to hate Esau. God made a decision even before they were born to love one and to hate the other. Now, I suspect for many of us, when we hear this, that God loves and then God hates, it's just strange. I mean, is this for real? God does this? I mean, isn't that a bit difficult to accept? Can God do that? Well, I suspect it's because we might think this way because we probably don't understand the type of love and the type of hate that God has. When we think of love, for example, what do we think of? So what do we think of when we think of love? We tend to think of a romantic picture of love, isn't it? You know, or the chick flicks type of love. That tends to be the type of love we think of. I wonder if this is the type of love that God has. But let me share with you this, this, this story, this illustration. Take, for example, Bob. Bob has a girlfriend, Jane. Bob takes Jane to McDonald's on a date. They buy some burgers, they buy some fries, they buy some drinks, and he takes her to the lake. They sit down by the lake. The sun is setting. It is pretty. It is glorious. And he turns to Jane while he eats his quarter pounder, and he says to Jane, 
I love you. I love you, Jane. Isn't this beautiful? He says to her, I find you so beautiful to look at. You know, your personality is so sweet. You know, this, this quarter pounder, the beef melts in my mouth. But when I hear your voice, that melts my heart. I love you, Jane. Just love you. Now, when a guy says that type of love to a girl, what does he actually mean? What does he mean? Well, he's probably saying, I love you because I find you lovable. You're pretty, you're attractive, your personality is great. That's why I love you. So he's actually saying, I love you because you're lovable. Now, he's not saying this is he. He's not saying, it's not turning to Jane. He's saying, you know what, Jane? Frankly speaking, you're an embarrassment to be with. I just can't imagine what those couples over there are thinking of me when they see me next to you. You're like the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I mean, your eyes are like goldfish. Your ears are like elephant and your breath, boy, that can kill a hippo. And your sight, oh, mate, I don't know how I can finish this quarter pounder looking at you and my burger. But I love you anyway. Now, I wonder when we think of love, do we think of the first kind of love or the second? And so when we read of God's love in the Bible for people, for humankind, for us, what type of love is that? Is God from heaven looking down upon humankind, upon us? And is God saying to you, is God saying to me, John, you know what, John? You are so sweet, John. Your physical structure is just so much in proportion. You're awesome to look at. Heaven will be so lonely without you, John. I love you. I mean, is that how we are to understand God's love when we read that God loves us? that is dependent on us, that is dependent on how lovable we are? Or should it be a bit more like this? Morally speaking, John, you are a disaster. You are disgusting. You are filthy. Morally speaking, you are revolting. I can't stand the sight of you. But I love you anyway. You see, God's love is more like the second kind of love, where it's, God's choice. God chooses to love. God decides to love. And it's unconditional. It doesn't depend on how lovable the person is. It doesn't depend on how lovable we are. And that was especially the case with Jacob. Now, if you know the story of Jacob, he wasn't a lovable person at all. What did he do? He was this little mummy's boy. How can you love a mummy's boy? Now, just just aside, you probably noticed that I wasn't the mummy's boy, so anyway. But Jacob, he was deceptive. He deceived his brother. His brother was pretty silly anyway, but deceived his brother of his birthright. And then he fooled his old man. He fooled his father, his blind father, for the blessing of the firstborn. But you see, God is saying here, I chose to love Jacob. And so I have chosen to love you as a nation. Not because of how good Jacob was, not because of how good you are. And I have chosen to love Jacob above Esau even before they were born. And so in Genesis 25, this is what God says to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within, uh, within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. 
and the older, that is Esau, will serve the younger, that is Jacob. And so when we think of God's love, it is about God's choice. God decides to love, and it's unconditional. It's not dependent on how lovable we are. Now, what about God's hate? I mean, I suspect we also have a wrong understanding of God's hate. I mean, how can God hate? Is God allowed to hate people? I mean, here again, our understanding of hate is often you know, vindictive. It's spiteful. We hate we, out of emotional rage, and our hate is contaminated by corruption and human sin. But is that the type of hate of God when we think of that? Well, when we read here, it says quite plainly that God had hated, God have hated Esau. And so what are we to think? God hates Esau. I mean, people have tried to deal with this difficult verse by, I guess, playing it down a bit, by saying it's not really God hating Esau. It's about God loving Esau less. And so God loves Jacob so much that Esau looks like it's been hated by God. But you see, Scripture actually has no problem with affirming that God hates. Strange, isn't it? But look at these verses from the Psalms. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. What about this? Psalm 11. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. It's hard to understand, isn't it? But the reality is, that's what it says here, God does hate. But we must recognize that it's a different type of hate to our hate, which is contaminated by human sin. Now, often you hear people uh, put it this way. God doesn't actually hate the person. God just hates the sin. So it makes a distinction between the sin and the person. Have you heard that? God doesn't hate the person. He hates the sin. But I want you to think about that. It's actually quite too simplistic. It doesn't actually work that way because in the end, when Judgment Day comes around, it's not the sin that ends up in hell. It's the person. So I want you to make sense of that. It's too simplistic to just say God loves the person, hates the sin. And so how, what are we to make sense here? How are we to make sense of this? Well, somehow in God's holy character, in his perfect character, he can righteously and justly hate because these people were evil. He chose to love one. He chose to hate the other. In fact, they were all evil. And so when we think about this, what's surprising to us is not that God, in fact, hates people. What should be surprising to us is that God, in fact, loves anyone at all. You see, we, we tend to have a too high of a view of ourselves, that we are good, that we actually deserve God's love, that God actually owes us love. But that's actually a wrong view. That's not a biblical view because our default position is that we're enemies of God. We're on the wrong side. We are his enemies. And so what should be surprising is that God would choose to love anyone at all because that is not what we deserve. That is not what any human being deserves. And so here, back to Malachi, God says, I have loved Jacob. I have hated Esau. How's that an answer to their question? How have you loved us? Well, God is showing here how he has dealt with their enemy. Edom, their arch enemy, was destroyed, destroyed by God. And so there was this other tribe that came from the south that destroyed Edom. 
And that was God's judgment on them, this wicked, wicked nation. And so we read in verse, um, verse 3, I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And, of course, Edom, they were proud and arrogant and said, we'll rebuild. You destroy it, we'll rebuild. But then God says in verse 4, they may, re- they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. So what's the result of all this? God has said, I love you. They're thinking, no, you haven't. Show us your love. God has said, well, I have loved you. Look, I've destroyed your enemies. What's the result? Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So what God is saying here is that eventually you will see that this God is great. He does love you. To the people during the time of Malachi, he does love you, and you'll see that he is great. And he is greater even beyond the borders of Israel. This verse is here because in the ancient time, each region had their own gods, and their deity, their idol, only had power over their region. But what God is saying here, what Malachi is saying here, is that he's the God of all. There's no boundaries to his power. So now let's think about the message. Only five verses. So what's the situation? During the time of Malachi, things were hopeless, really hopeless for everyone during that time. It appeared to them that God was angry with them rather than love them. But in the midst of all that hopelessness, in all that ruin, God says, I love you. And they should have said, yes, you do. They should have thought, Yes, he has loved us, and he will continue to love us. But instead, they question God, and they doubt God, and they ask God to prove it. Now, I wonder with us today, those of us who are Christians, I wonder if we respond the same way to those people during the time of Malachi. I mean, God has said quite clearly, isn't it? In Romans 8, nothing in all creation will separate the love of God uh, to us, the love of God shown to us in Christ. I mean, we read that and we think, is that for real? Is that really for real? Does God really love us that much? I mean, how about the time when I get sick? Where is God there? Where is God's love? How about the time when things are just not okay in a family household? There's hurt, there's pain, there's deception, there's lies. Where is God there? How about the time when I feel so lonely, isolated? My friends have deserted me. Where is God there? How about the time when I'm in tears and no one knows? Where is God there? You see, we can get angry with God too, can't we? We doubt God. Where is God's love for me? What has God done about it? Well, how did God answer that? How would God answer that if you cried out to God in your despair, in your distress, where is your love? Do you know what God's response is? Well, God's response is this. About 500 years after the time of Malachi, God sends his son into this world, lived a life that's unimaginable for the creator of the universe. Imagine that. This is the creator of the universe, but he lives this life of a carpenter, of a homeless man. He lived his life where he was hated 
abuse and despise. And he died the death of a criminal. He didn't die because he was a criminal. He died for us who are rebels, rebels against God, who God looks upon and says, you guys are morally corrupt. I cannot stand the sight of you. But you see, that's God's response. When we ask God, where is your love? Well, God's response is, look at the cross. Look at my son. Consider what has happened there. So Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so when times are hard, and they will be for Christians as well, when times are painful and difficult, they're not just what they are meant to be like. Jesus, God says, consider the cross. Look at the cross, and any doubt you have of God's love should just melt away. I mean, when you consider what God has done in Jesus for us, how can we still doubt God's love for us? And so the result of all this, well, I think verse 5 is helpful here. You see, the people will see that God is great. The people will see it, and they will cry out, God is indeed great. But you know what? For us on this side of the cross, we have seen it. We have seen what God has done. We have seen how God has loved. And we can proclaim as Christians that God is indeed great. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray.